Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 15, Chapter 13. Do you think the changes in Pierre's character will persist through the end of the book? Why does Pierre feel so confident handling his own finances now when he didn't before? And why do you think Pierre is insistent to rebuild in Moscow? Karakik says, I think what Pierre has now is humility. When he first came into wealth, or even as the illegitimate son of a wealthy man, I think Pierre felt like he should be a person of significance, but he didn't have depth or self-reflection that justified that attitude. So his attempts were awkward or harmful. In modern parlance, he was really cringe. But now he has let go of that feeling. He is able to listen and experience the world without pretense, which ironically makes him a much more likable guy. Wannabe influencers take note. Brett Peterson says, I do think the changes in Pierre are permanent. While previous changes have been just the result of Pierre trying to better himself, these changes are the result of trauma that he has rocked him to the core. I think Pierre has finally started listening to his inner voice and that gives him confidence in managing his own affairs and I'm sure, not sure, sorry, why he is insistent to rebuild in Moscow. I think he feel, feels a moral duty to repay his wife's debts and possibly a similar duty as a member of the Moscow Society to rebuild the community. Um, Alright. Fran Zepp says, I finally caught up after falling behind again for what feels like the 15th time. The philosophical chapters really get me. The new Pierre seems very decisive. A snobby French dude asking for money. Piss off. Steward tells you not to rebuild your house to save money. Screw it. It's the right thing to do. It's a very refreshing change from his previous attitudes. I'm hoping it lasts this time. Well, we do know that Pierre has pretty significant changes in his attitude. In Well, not really in his attitude, but just in his whims, I guess you could call them. So there's really no telling with that guy, is there? How permanent will this new phase be? Uh, okay, what are we up to? I'm going to keep reading to you guys. 14. Uh, how do you Roman numerals 14? That one always gets me XIV. Let me just double check that. Yes. All right, XIV. Here we go. It would be difficult to explain why and whether ants whose heap who has been destroyed are hurrying. Some from the heap dragging bits of rubbish, larvae and corpses, others back to the heap, or why they jostle, overtake one another and fight. And it would be equally difficult to explain what caused the Russians after the departure of the French to throng to the place that had formerly been Moscow. But when we watch the ants round their ruined heap, the tenacity, energy, and immense number of delving insects prove that despite the destruction of the heap, something indestructible, which, though intangible, is the real strength of the colony, still exists. And similarly, though in Moscow in the mouth of October there was no government and no churches, shrines, riches, or houses, it was still the Moscow it had been in August. All was destroyed except something intangible, yet powerful and indestructible. The motives of those who thronged from all sides to Moscow after it had been cleared of the enemy were most diverse and personal, and at first, for the most part, savage and brutal. One motive only they all had in common, a desire to get to the place that had been called Moscow, 
to apply their activities there. Within a week, Moscow already had 15,000 inhabitants, in a fortnight, 25,000, and so on. By the autumn of 1813, the number ever increasing and increasing exceeded what it had been in 1812. The first Russians to enter Moscow were the Cossacks of Winter Gerod detachment, peasants from the adjacent villages and residents who had fled from Moscow and had been hiding in its vicinity. The Russians who entered Moscow, finding it plundered, plundered it in their turn. They continued what the French had begun. Trains of peasant carts came to Moscow to carry off to the villages what had been abandoned in the ruined houses and streets. The Cossacks carried off what they could to their camps, and the householders seized all they could find in other houses and moved it to their own, pretending that it was their property. But the first plunderers who followed by a second and third contingent, and with increasing numbers, plundering became more and more difficult and assumed more definite forms. The French found Moscow abandoned, but with all the organisations of regular life, with diverse branches of commerce and craftsmanship, with luxury and governmental and religious institutions, these forms were lifeless but still existed. They there were bazaars, shops, warehouses, market stalls, granaries, for the most part, still stocked with goods. And there were factories and workshops, palaces and wealthy houses filled with luxuries, hospitals, prisons, government offices, churches and cathedrals. The longer the French remained, the more these forms of town life perished. Until finally all was merged into one confused, lifeless scene of plunder. The more the plundering by the French continued, the more both the wealth of Moscow and the strength of its plunderers was destroyed. But plundering by the Russians, with which the reoccupation of the city began, had an opposite effect. The longer it continued and the greater the number of people taking part in it, the more rapidly was the wealth of the city and its regular life restored. Besides the plunderers, very, very various people, some drawn by curiosity, some by official duties, some by self-interest, House owners, clergy, officials of all kinds, tradesmen, artisans and peasants streamed into Moscow as blood flows to the heart. Within a week the peasants who came with empty carts to carry off plunder were stopped by authorities and made to the cart the corpses out of the town. Other peasants, having heard of their comrades' discomfiture, came to town bringing rye, oats and hay and beat down one another's prices to below what they had been in former days. Gangs of carpenters hoping for high pay arrived in Moscow every day, and on all sides logs were being hewn, new houses built, and old charred ones repaired. Tradesmen began trading in booths, cook shops and taverns were opened in, in partially burned houses. The clergy resumed the services in many churches that had not been burned. Donors contributed to church property that had been stolen. Government clerks set up their baize-covered tables and their pigeonholes of documents in small rooms. The higher authorities and the police organised the distribution of go goods left behind by the French. The owners of houses in which much property had been left, brought from there, sorry, brought there from other houses, complained of the injustice of taking everything to the faceted palace in the Kremlin. Others insisted that, as the French had gathered things from different houses into this or that house, it would be unfair to allow its owner to keep all that was found there. They abused the police and bribed them, made out estimates at ten times their value for government stores that had perished in the fire and demanded relief, and Count Rostopchin wrote proclamations. Alright, there we go. There's a chapter for you. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.